0: We're so glad that y'all have joined us online for worship today, and we're positive that God has something specifically to speak just to you. We want you to know that you are always welcome here at First Baptist Azle, and that you can connect with us by going online to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. Now let's hop back into the sermon and hear what God has for us today. With that, would you go ahead and stand with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 6 For in scripture it says See I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame Now to you who believe this stone is precious But to those who do not believe the stone is the the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage and its power in our life and what it means for us and for the world. We ask and pray right now as you forgive us and cleanse us of our sins as we come before you, Father, and we confess our sins to you. We acknowledge that we are unworthy in and of ourselves to be in your presence. No question. We have all sinned and fallen fallen short of your glory. We praise you, O God, for your son, Jesus, and it's through his blood and in his name we ask for cleansing. We do ask and pray for your intercession in the life of Sandy Schaefer. We know that Sandy loves you and she trusts you. Oh, how she loves you. And we know that she's loved by you and that you're concerned about her life. We know you have authority over her life And so we are asking and praying in the name of Christ, if you can be glorified, that you would heal her at this very moment. We thank you for her faith and for your compassion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today I'm going to begin a four-week series entitled... There we go. Precious. Living life around what matters most. Precious. That's the name of the series is the word precious. Uh, You know, it's funny. I can't explain how God works. And sometimes he gives me a verse or a passage and sometimes it's just a single word. And so I, I was going to preach on precious, but as I began to study the word in the Bible... It went from one to two to four sermons very quickly because there is a great deal to learn about that single word in the Bible. And so we're going to look at this short series entitled Precious, Living a Life Around What Matters Most. So I ask you this morning, what is most precious to you? If you had a fire in your house, what would you run out of the house with? Um, what is most precious? Would you grab the jewelry or the cash, if you have any cash? We don't have to worry about that at my house. (laughs) Maybe grab the passports. What what would you grab? Well, a lot of things come to my mind because I'm sentimental. I'm sentimental because my mother was sentimental, and somehow I I got that trade in sentimental, this code word for pack rat. But there are so many things that have great value. And for sentimental people, and you sentimental people will get this, sometimes those things don't have any kind of earthly value or monetary value at all, but they are things that are deeply precious to us. So I wanted to show you one of mine. I may have shown you this in years past. I don't know, after 23 years, I can't remember. But if you've seen it before, you're going to see it again. This is a music box. My mother collected music boxes she had jillions of them, probably hundreds of them, because we gave her music boxes as gifts uh, for Christmas and her birthday, year after year, decade after decade. And so she had a lot of music boxes. But I like to say this is her favorite. I like to say that because I gave it to her. <laughs> so mom, I, mom would always play this. It plays Amazing Grace. It has a little uh, picture uh, or depiction of the, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper on the front of it. And uh, uh, the reason I got it for was because I was broke. Uh, It was in 1983, I was a sophomore in college, and I remember, oh excuse me, it was 1984, I was a sophomore in college, uh, because I dropped out in 1983, uh, and then I realized I didn't wanna spend my life working at Gibson's Discount Center, and so I went back in 84. But I didn't have a nickel. I mean, I, you know, maybe 20 bucks. I don't remember what it cost me. I was at the mall. I was looking for something to give mom. And, and she had some expensive um, uh, music boxes. This is not one of them. Uh, this was, uh, they had a, a craft fair in the, in the mall. And so uh, there were tables all along the middle of the mall in the main walkway with, with local craftspeople selling their things for Christmas. This is so cheap. I mean, uh, it was just thrown together. Whoever made it, I could tell they spent about three minutes making it. Bless their hearts. And um, uh, so it's not well made, although the thing still works all these years later. So I guess I shouldn't complain about it too much. But even though it was the cheapest uh, music box I think mom ever had, it was her favorite. At least that's what she told me. Um, So I'm going to take mom by her word that it was her favorite And I'm going to also uh, take one more step and say it was her favorite because I was her favorite child. How about that? (laughs) Um, I'm not sure that's true, but I'm going to go with that. I mean, the front thing right here is not even centered. It's over lopsided on one side a little too far. Um, But it it meant a lot to mom. And every time I would go home, uh, she would play this over and over. It plays Amazing Grace. And I would play for you right now, but I'll start crying immediately. And so if we had a fire, this worthless music box is probably the first thing I would grab running out of the house. It's precious to me. So what is precious to you in your life? You probably have it pictured in your mind. Let me turn that around. Some things that are precious to you because of what they mean or what they represent. And so from that idea, I decided to write... Uh, a a series of messages on what is precious. When I was in the eighth grade, I read a book for a book report by author J.R.R. Tolkien entitled The Hobbit. Most of you are familiar with that story. It was published in 1937 and told the fictional story about a little short man called a hobbit living in a place called Middle Earth. His name was Bilbo Baggins. In his adventures, he comes across a strange creature named Gollum, whose life is singularly obsessed with a magic ring he calls My Precious. So that's what the picture is right there. That's that's the ring that is in The Hobbit. And then uh, J.R.R. Tolkien went on to write an entire series, The, the, Lord, uh, the Fellowship of the Rings, uh, over that ring, that one ring. So he got a lot of books out of one ring. <clears throat> if you remember the story, Gollum was a sad little creature, and he lived for one thing and one thing only, and that was for his precious ring. It was the most important thing in the world to him. And compared to the ring, nothing else mattered what is precious to you what should be precious to you what occupies your time your thoughts your finances your energy those are the things that are most precious to you so as I did a study on the word precious in the Bible, it's mentioned 48 times in Scripture. And almost every time, not every time, but almost every time, it's a reference to a precious stone. Usually the word after the, after the word precious is the word stone. And we see that from, from early in the Old Testament all the way through the end of the New Testament. The first time we actually see it is 2 Samuel. David has just conquered a, a, a pagan kingdom or a city, and when he conquered it, he and his men went into the city. They captured the king, and his men took the crown off of the king and placed it on David's head. And so it happened to mention two things about the crown. First, it was solid gold. It weighed seventy-five pounds. <laughs> about that, boy, I'd want a lighter, a lighter crown. Although I'd love to have that crown. Um, but it also mentions that it had in the crown embedded in the crown precious stones. and so that's the first usage of the word precious in the Bible there in second Samuel. Now throughout the Bible it's used time and again and then we see it used a great deal at the very end of the Bible in revelation when it describes heaven. Do you remember that wonderful passage when it talks about all the precious stones that that are compared to how heaven is constructed and what a beautiful place it is. But there are a few times in the Bible where the word precious is referred to in ways different than precious stones. And we're going to look at those today and in the weeks to come. What is precious in the Word of God? What is to be precious for us? What is to be precious for not just believers, but all mankind? It's easy for us to get confused in our world and put our focus on other things. We're going to find out that which is most precious today is in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 4. I read a little differently while well I go uh, to you. Uh, I started in verse 6. So we're going to back up to verse 4. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says this, As you come to Him, the living stone, that's a reference to Jesus of course, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and what? Precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and what? Precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. precious. So three times we see in this passage, it, it may be the only time in the Bible we see this word used so many times in such a short passage, and it's referring to Jesus. Now, he does talk about us in this passage, It refers to a temple that's being built. And certainly in the time of David and Solomon, the temple was built with massive stones. And then we see Zerubbabel, after that temple was destroyed, Zerubbabel came back and built a second temple. And then in the New Testament, we see that Herod renovated that temple. We call it Herod's temple because of that. In fact, those renovations took place over the course of decades throughout the entire life of Jesus, The temple was being renovated and it was uh, well progressed by the time Jesus began his ministry some 30 years after his birth. One of the disciples said to him, look at these magnificent stones, a reference to the temple. Jesus prophesied that those stones were all going to be torn down. If you remember that cryptic uh, uh, prophecy that he gave. But here he's talking about a different kind of temple. Built with a a different kind of stone. This is a temple in the kingdom of God. And this temple is built with what Jesus refers to as living stones, which is his people. You and I, believers and followers in Christ. If you've given your life to Christ, you are a living stone. And then you see the, the oddity of that or the oxymoron in that. Because stones are dead. They're not alive. Now, I love stones. Terry and I, we'll, we'll drive around, we'll look at new houses. And oh, I can often tell how old a house is by what kind of stone they use, if they use any stone on it at all. Um, you know that I like stone because I've tortured the poor dear members of this church putting in stone. We, I, 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 I went to you guys some years ago, several years ago, and I said, I want a stone wall back here. We had painted wall. I, I want stone. I could just vision cast the, this stone wall and for, it took us months to get that wall up. But I wasn't satisfied. We put these columns up over here. And I thought, you know, those need something. How about some stone? And so for months, you know, we cut stone and put it in here. And, and to, to your credit, uh, not one stone has fallen off the wall yet. So praise God for that. Amen. But I wasn't through. I, I loved it so much that when we renovated the, the lobby, I thought, where can I put some stone? Of course, we have it on the porch already. So we built this 23-foot-tall fireplace, 15 feet wide at the base, all covered in stone. Again, it took two and a half months to build that thing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good on stone. But here's what I like about stone. I've, I know I've told you this before. These stones right here, they're not fake. They're real stones. A lot of stone is fake anymore. These are real stones. These stones existed when God created Adam and Eve. Isn't that extraordinary? They've been around a long time. Here's the bad news about these stones. They're dead. They've never been alive. They're just dead. And so Jesus describes this spiritual building, this eternal temple that's made out of living stones, people, you and me. And Jesus is described as the cornerstone of this living temple. Precious. That's a reference to Jesus. According to one definition, the cornerstone is historically the first stone that is set in the construction of a masonry foundation. And in antiquity, all other stones in that structure would be built from that cornerstone. And so the the size and the type of structure. Was dictated by the size and shape of that one stone. It was the most important, the most critical piece of the entire structure. And because of our connection to the living stone, that is Jesus Christ, we have become living stones to Him. Back when the Old West was being settled, pioneers flocked across the country to California and to Oregon. Now they're flocking back. <laughs> but at the time, we were, they were all flocking to California and Oregon. And so they had to go through the Rockies in order to do that. And in one particular spot on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains, there was a large dirt-covered rock protruding from the middle of the trail. It was right in the middle of the trail. Wagon wheels were broken on it, and men would trip over it, literally trip over the rock. Finally, someone dug up the old stone and rolled it uh, off the trail into a nearby stream. And at that point, the legend says that the stone was actually used for people to step over in order to get across the stream. They couldn't jump the stream on their own, but the stone allowed them to take a couple of leaps so that they could make it across the uh, the stream. And so for a long time, the stone was used for that purpose. Finally, one settler built a cabin right there by the stream and he decided to take that old dirty stone, pull it up out of the, out of the creek and uh, put it in his house. He used it for a doorstop for many years. Years and years later, railroads were built and towns sprang up. The old settler's grandson went uh, east to study geology and on a visit to his grandfather's cabin, The grandson happened to examine the old lump of stone and dirt, and he discovered in that stone was the largest gold nugget ever discovered on the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains. It had been there for three generations, and people never recognized its value. To some, it was a stumbling stone. To others, it was just a heavy rock or a stepping stone. But to the grandson, he saw it for what it really was. A lump of pure, precious gold. In this passage, Jesus is the precious stone that is our capstone, our cornerstone, but a stumbling stone to those who will not believe. Now I want us to look at one more passage that describes Jesus and why he's so precious to us. Look with me if you would in John chapter 7 verse 37. John 7:37. Great passage by the way. One of my favorites and I'll tell you why in a minute and I'll remind your wife if you don't already know. John chapter 7 verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, that is the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, "If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a week long, seven days long, and this festival would, would grow every day. And so it's the last day, it's the big day. Normally, people taught sitting down. Uh, They don't stand behind pulpits like we do today. They taught sitting down. In fact, for the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in all of history, it specifically mentions that Jesus sat down on a rock and taught his disciples that day. But here, Jesus stood up, which was unusual. No doubt, he got the attention of everybody when he stood up. And he made this remarkable statement. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink notice the condition it doesn't say everybody can come he says if there's the condition if you're what thirsty if you're thirsty only if you're thirsty if people don't drink if they're not thirsty now did everybody need spiritual water absolutely did everybody need Christ absolutely does everybody need Christ today you better believe it. This world needs Christ. The thing was, in that day as well as today, there were many who don't, did not think they needed Christ. They didn't need any water. They weren't spiritually thirsty at all. Now, the oddity about that was many of those who thought they were already full, who were actually empty, were their religious leaders. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the spiritual leaders of the day, the scribes, They didn't need what Jesus offered because they they just weren't spiritually thirsty enough. So Jesus says to the multitudes, listen, if you're thirsty, if you really thirst for spiritual things, come to me and I will give you eternal water, living water. And so he makes that offer with that condition. We have to decide, are we thirsty for what Christ offers. It's interesting that God would use water to symbolize his spirit. In the beginning, when God created the earth, water was all there was. If you remember, it wasn't until the third day of creation that there was any dry ground at all in Genesis 1-9. To this day, about 70% of the earth is covered by water. Water was one of the main elements God used in creation for example, if you were to go outside and look at a tree out in front, one of our oak trees, those trees, like all trees, are about 75% water. If you go to Chicken Express after we're done here, chickens are 75% water. <laughs> yeah. The common pineapple is 80% water. Then, of course, there's you and me. Water compromises more than 60% of your body. 70% of your brain is water, some probably more. 80% of your blood is water, and nearly 90% of your lungs are made of water. Isn't that something? It is remarkable that we don't all get pneumonia all the time. 90% water in our lungs. Water in our earth is seemingly everywhere. You know, when NASA explores through a telescope or through rovers or through rockets or whatever, our universe or our solar system, the first thing they like to look for is water. I read a report this year that they think they found a lot of frozen water on Mars. And that's really, really important. Why? Because without water, life is impossible. And so they, if they find water on Mars, there's this possibility that even though it may be... M- microscopic, there may be life at one point on Mars, because water means life. So Jesus gives this great promise in John seven thirty eight: whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. After we had been here for a few months, God was really blessing us, and we were growing, and we had a dear lady that worked at Walmart. She began to visit our church and she said, you know, I used to have a job where I, would, I could uh, uh, inscribe things in, in stone. She had some sort of machinery or tools needed to carve letters into stone. She, she loved the fountain out front. She said, would you like me to carve something on stone and we'll put it at the fountain? I said, well, yes, ma'am. There is something I would like you to put on that stone. I said, it's John chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And so she put that on the stone and I put the stone out there. And so after we'd been here for a few years, I challenged you one Sunday morning. I said, hey, there is an inscription on that stone out front. Can anybody raise their hand and quote that scripture and give me the reference? And not one person could do it. We walk by that stone all the time. Now it's been, what, a decade uh, later? Have you noticed the stone that you walk by every Sunday morning? There's a reason why I had her put that on there, the fact that it's a stream out there, which I really like the fountain, but it gives it meaning when it's a reference to Christ. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within them. You see, Jesus is the source of the fountain that wells up for faithful believers. I love going to Israel. I missed it this time. We were scheduled to go. In fact, all those of you who wanted to go had signed up to go and had already paid to go in full. We'd already bought the plane tickets and the hotel, we had everything. We were ready. And then uh, came COVID-19. That dirty booger, <laughs> it ruined our plans. We had to cancel our plane tickets and our tour of Israel this year. Now we'll go again, I promise. If you've ever been to Israel, it is a fascinating place. As Jesus is talking to these people, they've seen probably two bodies of water in their life. Now, some of them, if they've gone east or west, if they've gone west, they've seen the Mediterranean Sea. But Israel is a long, narrow country. And most of them have been to the north, at some in their life, and they all travel to Jerusalem at some point uh, in their life, if not once a year. Up in the north is the Sea of Galilee, which you know is a freshwater lake, also called Lake Gennesaret. It's where all the fish are. It's where all the, all the life is and the trees and everything comes from the Sea of Galilee. It's the most beautiful area in all of Israel. And as you leave that you go further south, as soon as you depart from the Sea of Galilee, it starts drying up. It's just like going from here to Abilene or Odessa. You know, it just, the trees get smaller and stumpier and scrubbier until they're just tumbleweeds. And that's what happens in Israel. Because once that beautiful, clean, and it's a beautiful lake, by the way, water leaves the Sea of Galilee, it goes down the Jordan River further down, 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 until it gets to the Dead Sea. The reason it's called the Dead Sea is because that's the lowest place on earth. And it has nowhere to go but up, and water can't go up, and so it just stays there and evaporates. And so the minerals over the years just continue to make it thicker and thicker and thicker. I thought it would be a cesspool looking place. It was not. I thought it would stink. You know, this idea of stagnant water, but it didn't. It was beautiful. It was a blue-green. You know, you can't, sink in the Dead Sea. You float. Uh, In fact, if you go out very far, your feet just kind of come up out from under you. Uh, So it's a fascinating place. But here's the thing about the Dead Sea, and you already know this, there is not a plan around it. It's just rocks all the way around. I mean, that entire sea and not one tree, not one shrub, not one bush, not one flower. It's all dead. That's why I call it the Dead Sea. In the water, you won't have to worry. You know, when we baptize in the Jordan River, the, the fishing is not allowed there. So there are all these fish that come up and nibble on your toes while you're being baptized. You don't have to worry about them nibbling on your toes in the Dead Sea because there are no fish, it's dead. It's completely, utterly lifeless. And so what makes it lifeless? The fact that it is stagnant, can't flow out. Jesus in this passage says, I will do what? I will well up streams of living water that will flow through you. That's life in this world and in the next world. That's why Jesus is precious to us. I heard a story about a man who purchased a little white mouse for his pet boa constrictor got a pet snake, and um, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a pet snake before or not. My brother had a pet boa once, and I, I think he fed it a mouse every other week. I always say this, I wish my teenagers were more like a snake. Wouldn't it be great if you just had to feed your kids once every two weeks? That'd be awesome, wouldn't <laughs> it? Once every other week. Now, again, I'll pray for that later, uh, Compare my kids with a snake, but... Um, he fed this snake once every two weeks. And so he bought this little white mouse. And when it came time, he had this, aqua- this big dry aquarium and had sawdust in the bottom and the boa constrictor was in the bottom of this aquarium. And so he took this little mouse and he dropped it in the aquarium. Now the snake was fast asleep, all coiled up on that sawdust. Well, the mouse couldn't get out. He realized his position, he saw the snake lying there, so when he couldn't get out, he began to frantically kick and dig on the sawdust and push the sawdust up on the snake, so that eventually he went all around the snake, and he had completely covered that snake up with sawdust. Now you know, and I know exactly what was going to happen, that sawdust wasn't going to protect that mouse for half a second. As soon as the snake woke up, the owner realized, of course, that's why he put the mouse in there. As soon as the snake woke up, he's going to smell that mouse and eat that mouse. But the, the owner of the snake was so impressed by the effort of that mouse to try to survive that he took the mouse, picked him back up by the tail, and saved his life. <laughs> that interesting? Saved that worthless mouse. So that's interesting. Now here's the analogy of that story. Sin is just like the snake. In your life, and my life, we can ignore it, pretend it's not there, or we can try and cover it up. But there it is, and eventually it will devour you and me. It will cost us our life. But God, in His mercy, sent Christ to die in our place. In His mercy, He delivered us from sin. There's a great worship song that our team sung this morning called Cornerstone. It is derived from, partly from a, an old hymn, a great hymn, and it goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone. Cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Christ alone, cornerstone. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord. Lord of all. That's why He's precious. Pray with me. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Son. Thank You for Your mercy in our life by sending Him to take our sin that is deserving of death and Your Word says that we've all sinned and fall short of Your glory and that the wages of sin is death. That's not Your fault. That's our fault. That's not Your doing. That's our doing. despite of what this world says, that there's no absolute right or wrong, or do whatever you want, that we get to choose, or that more morality or right or wrong is somehow a democratic process, that we vote and decide this is right and this is wrong, stands your word, that exposes our foolishness Because you are a moral God. You decide. You alone decide what is right and what is wrong. And we've all chosen wrong. But you are a loving and merciful God. You don't want us to die in our sin. So you sent the cornerstone, your son, precious to you. To die for our sins. Thank you so much. Father, forgive us where we have been distracted. We've made other things more precious. Hobbies, habits, addictions, and distractions. Oh, forgive us. Help us right now in our heart to acknowledge how precious Jesus is. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you this morning to spend some time thanking God for Jesus? And I want to ask you, is He precious to you? Is He really precious to you? Again, in the day of Jesus, there were many who gave lift service to God, but their hearts were not in it. They didn't really mean it in their hearts. And so I'm asking you, just in your heart, is Jesus really precious to you? Will you share that with him right now? Maybe God is calling you right now to make a public decision to give your life to Christ. You realize he's not precious. There are a lot of things in your life that are more precious than him. And you can only have one. Only have one Lord in your life. And either he's the Lord or he's not. Either he's the most precious thing in your life or he isn't. And you want to come down and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. That's all you have to do. Come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'll talk with you and pray with you. You won't have to give a speech or anything like that. Just come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. could be God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church and to serve Him here. We want you to know you're welcome in this place. could be you just want to come and kneel and say, thank you, Jesus, for being that precious cornerstone. You are precious to me. No one's looking around. As you pray, would you stand right now? And as you pray, as you stand, this invitation is for you right now. You come. Well, thanks for joining us today online for our worship service. We hope that you were ministered and encouraged to while you're with us. And we just want to remind you that you can connect with us online by going to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. We hope to see you again next week.